Hello, and welcome to another episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Since 2020, we have been gathering, laughing, learning hard truths, and sharing in community conversations with Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island. Each episode, we learn something new, and we're excited to be sharing this journey with you. Roots and Hoots is about connecting with and celebrating Indigenous people's contributions to their fields of study, work, and cultures. We also speak with allies who share how they are furthering the work of reconciliation in Canada. To learn more about the Legacy of Hope Foundation and the work that we do, please visit legacyofhope.ca. In this episode of Roots and Hoots, host Gordon Spence sits down with His Excellency Mr. Whit Fraser. Mr. Fraser built a career and life in Canada's Arctic, working as a broadcaster with CBC. He was also a founding chairman for the Canadian Polar Commission, now Polar Knowledge Canada, and shares about the importance of valuing Indigenous knowledge and science. In 2018, Mr. Fraser first released his memoir, True North Rising, which chronicles his time up north, including the coverage of the groundbreaking Bergen Mackenzie Valley Pipeline Inquiry. In 2023, he released Cold Edge of Heaven, which is a historical fiction taking place at the RCMP outpost of Dundas Harbour in the 1920s. As the Viceregal Consort to the Governor-General of Canada, Mr. Fraser shares about his life generously and joyously. Enjoy this episode filled with historical significance. Hello and welcome to this podcast episode of Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Mr. Whit Fraser. Hello, Mr. Fraser. How are you today? Call me Wit, please, Gordon. Okay, Wit. Uh, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Maybe you can just start by uh, talking a little bit about where you come from, like uh, where you grew up, your a little bit about your your family side. Well, I'm a Nova Scotian, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a little village. Was born in a little village, and my family moved to a coal mining town, but we weren't coal miners. Named Stellarton. And that's, that's where I grew up, went to school, uh, played hockey and baseball. And, yeah, yeah. And we had a great childhood, yeah. you know, with little town, and we had a great childhood. That's yeah. that's what I remember. But we didn't have any money, but sure, we had fun, and we had an arena. And after school, you could go to the arena every yeah. day and skate, and I, yeah. I still think of that. So, mm-hmm. And then, uh, to make a long story short, had, the town had lots of fun, lots of people, lots mm-hmm. of kids, but geez, it had no economy. <laughs> no economy. No economy. So in the nineteen early nineteen nineteen sixty, I joined the Air Force, and partway through the Air Force, a family came along. I needed a job, mm-hmm. and I got a part-time job in a radio station in PEI. Right. And somebody heard me read the news one night and offered me a job with CBC Northern Service yes. in Frobisher Bay, now I call it. Yeah. And uh, so by 1967, here I was at uh, CBC Frobisher Bay in a whole new life. But all the way along, I, I had no plan, Gordon. Just uh, just good luck came my way. And, yeah. and there's an old baseball player had a saying, Yogi Berra says, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fundamentally what I did. Yeah. Okay, I took it. Somebody said, do you want a job with CBC in the north? Yeah. Absolutely. You uh, yeah. you talk about in your book, um, True North Rising, 
um, about uh, taking a left or a right turn. Uh, is that your, the right turn you made? That's the right turn I made. And, and, and I've done that my whole life. And in the book, I use the term uh, because I, <laughs> I had an encounter with a polar bear up on the uh, on Gava Bay at my brother-in-law's camp. And I started to go down the cliff to check the fishnets for Mary and her sister. They, you know, the uh, uh, nets were lying on the on the uh, shoreline. They rise and fall with the tide, and you, you set them and clean them out with the tide. And I went down to be a nice guy and check the nets. And I was picking my way down the cliff, and it looked too steep. So I stopped and came up, back up, and went down the other way. Right. And when I came halfway down the other way, there was a polar bear at the bottom of only about 10 or 10 feet above me. But he was waiting for me. Okay. And I saw him first and from above and scared the living bejesus out of both of us. <laughs> and I got up over the cliff and back into one of the cabins, and he came after me. He uh, chased you. Oh yeah, he, yeah. Well, I'll say he followed. He followed you. Yeah. And uh, and uh, but I got my brother-in-law William Taguna up right away, and William opened the door, and the bear wasn't twenty feet away. And he had to put him away. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. So that was left or right too. That was you left know, or right. Yeah. 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 He took the left. He went back and turned right. <laughs> yeah. Thank God. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you are married to the uh, Governor General of Canada, Her Excellency. Her Excellency, Mary Mae Simon. How did you meet? Could you imagine the road that would lead you to Rideau Hall, the official residence of the Governor General? Not in your wildest dreams, no. And we met. We met at the, we met at the most interesting time. Mm -hmm. Because we met at the very dawn of the land claims movement in 1974. ITK, I, uh, Inuit Tapirisit then of Canada, had been formed. Yeah. Mary had been working at CBC North, but we never met. She was working in Montreal. I was working now in Yellowknife. I had moved over to Yellowknife, and I was working in the newsroom. And uh, so I went up to cover one of the first big conferences of, of Inuit Tapirisit, and she was working as a translator. The only thing is, I often I wondered at the beginning is who she translating for because the entire meeting was in Inuktitut, every delegate was an Inuk, uh, but there were a half dozen, couple of reporters. Yeah, there were a, a half dozen or more people from the federal and the territorial governments who were there as observers. And the president, the founding president and the visionary president of ITC at the time, Taggart Curley, he wanted translation because he wanted the word out to the rest of the country what was happening. Yeah. And so Mary helped me with, with names and pronunciations and he translated interviews for me and all of that. And we, we had a, a very easy and quick friendship. The only thing was... We were both married with young kids, yeah, yeah. and our paths crossed, I can't tell you how many times, over yes. the next 20 years or 18 years, 
through the constitutional negotiations. So you became friends? And we became friends, and I'd interviewed her dozens of times, and and, uh, we kept contact. And then, uh, and then, in 1990, um, an old mutual boss at CBC had retired, and I was going to his retirement party, and and I suggested to Mary that since she had known him, she should go as well, and she did, and the rest is history, as they say. Yes. Yeah. 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 We were both separated by then, yeah. and then. Uh, and then started going steady. So, yeah. that's pretty awesome. And and I want to uh, ask you, what is a typical day in the life for you these days? Well, my life's pretty easy, Gordon. Yeah. I have to say, I uh, if I can kind of use the expression of a of an old baseball player riding the bench. You know, okay. they put me in when they need me. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. but when there there are events when the both of us should be there, and I'm always happy to to be yeah. there. You're not always. No, and uh, and I uh, and some days I have entirely free days. Uh, there's some issues that I like to be involved in or offer comments on and yeah. mostly around communication stuff because yeah. that's my background. But all of the operational meetings and the uh, the day-to-day duties of the Governor General, I'm not really, not, not, I wouldn't say I'm involved yeah. hardly at all. Yeah. And her day is far different than mine. It's yeah. full, full, full. She's got a big workload? She has a huge workload. Yeah. Really? Yeah. How does it feel like like living there? And uh, is it? Uh, is, I mean, you just can't well, walk away it, and go have coffee with us, or you know, Well, I. But the thing is, the thing is that I can and I do. Yeah. And I'm easy. It's more, far more complicated if Mary has to do that because there's security involved. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there's also a schedule involved, so it's a lot easier for me. But I can do. You know, I can be in. I'm 81 the other day, Gordon, so Whoa. I can be an old man if I want to be and well, you sure sit, in, sit in my rocking chair for the day if I want to. I yes, like to do yes, writing, and yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to do that. I'm yeah. going to try and do an, finish another book soon. and yeah. uh, So I keep busy anyway and, uh, and keep it, try and keep in touch with old friends and right. stay tuned. You sure don't look 81. Oh, thank you. No, yeah. you look yeah. more like yeah. 70 or 60. <laughs> <laughs> it had rage, you know? Um, your book, uh, True North Rising, describes your time living, working, traveling, and hunting up north in the Arctic. Um, what prompted you to travel north, and could you have predicted that you would build a career in Canada's Arctic? No. Uh, you know, I would like to say that I had this great plan, mm-hmm. but I didn't. Uh, I grabbed opportunities, and it was in, in the very early 1960s, most of us had to do that. You you had to look for your opportunities and take them. Right. That's what I did. Uh, but once there, once I was in the north, I felt comfortable. Yeah. Right from day one. Like you belonged? Like I belonged. I felt comfortable. And the people I met uh, and worked with, there was an Enoch broadcaster named Jonah Kelly. And he was a fantastic broadcaster. He did all of his programming in Inuktitut. And when I met Jonah, 
I mean, I was only 24, uh, and uh, Jonah would have been probably 21 or 22. And he was the long, he had the long tooth in the station. He'd been there for close to a year, and all of the rest of us were there just matters of months when I arrived. Was this uh, in Yellowknife? In, no, this was in Callaway, or Frobisher Bay. Yeah. And Jonah, uh, Jonah and I got along right off the bat. Yeah. And I think I said to him when I first met him, I said, you know, I said, he said his name, Jonah Kelly. And I think I said, geez, I thought you were Roy Orbison. <laughs> because he had this jet black cropped hair yeah. and um, and nice. falling down around his eyes and stuff yeah. and dark glasses, <laughs> sunglasses, <laughs> black print sunglasses. I said, geez, I thought you were Roy Orbison. <laughs> well, he laughed, and of course, that was all it took, you know. That's yeah. all it took was on a little joke and a laugh. And, yeah. and, and then from Jonah. Then from Joan, I, you know, was able to be introduced from people in what we called down in the village. Mm -hmm. Because all of us lived in this cocoon, this old federal air base uh, office and barracks complex called the Federal Building. CBC place was there. Most of the employees for the federal government lived in that building or in a little collection of houses Near, near and around the airport. And the Inuit lived a mile away, or a half mile away, along the beach. Ayaya songs are about our histories. Ayaya is an Inuit-owned firm that tells our stories in many languages across Canada. They are experts in publishing children's books, usually in syllabics, and they also do large multi-language projects like the reports of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. If you need help getting your stories into classrooms or homes, in Cree, Inuktitut, or other Indigenous languages, check them out at ayaya.ca. That's A-Y-A-Y-A dot C-A. Where they'd be close to the boats and all of that, a regular yeah. village. And that village was called Ikalawit. Okay. And so I was got to feel comfortable to go down to the village and, you know, hang out with Jonah, uh, meet other people. So the comfort was there. And it didn't feel different except for language. It didn't feel different than back in Nova Scotia, in the little villages yeah. around Nova Scotia. Boats are all scattered around. People live in small houses. Uh, everybody talks about the weather and whether the fish are running and where the fish are. Uh, you know, the discussions were about the land and the local economy and stuff right, like that. Yeah. And the music is almost the same with the fiddles, the Scots-Irish tunes, yeah. and the accordion. So there was a parallel and a comfort yeah. level. And I knew people, I knew people, many, who went north uh, for all kinds of companies, CBC and or policeman or power commission or the government they had a they had a mission they would go for two years make some money get a promotion and leave they'd never connect with the with the communities mm -hmm. uh, but I was lucky and I and, and it was that comfort level but in part uh, a large part because of Jonah's warmth and welcoming how long did you live there Two years in Calumet, yeah. Frobisher, and then 10 years after that in Yellowknife. Right, okay. And similarly, when I got to Yellowknife, it was a Dene, almost the same, but 
rather than an Inuk, it was a Dene named Joe Toby. And Joe met me almost on the first day at CBC, and we got along really well. And it wasn't very long before Joe said, you want to come caribou hunting? So I said, sure. And I guess I passed the audition because the next week he said, you want to go caribou hunting again? And we went for years for dozens of times. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Different people, Danny and Inuit. Yes, but... No, <laughs> you yes, know, no. Yeah. on a one-on-one level, people, human, yeah. we're all pretty close, you right. know. Yeah, yeah. Different cultures, different worldview, yeah. different languages, but... Regarding the uh, Berger Commission inquiry and the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline, with your involvement as a CBC radio broadcaster, you met and made many lifetime friends, as you spoke of some of them just, just now. Is there one or two things or people that stand out in your memory of this period in your life? Well, all of them do. I mean, uh, let me let me just take you, take people and listeners back to back to that time about 1970, beginning in 1969, 1970, in the early 1970s. The North changed dramatically. There were two federal government programs, one that I'm sure you've talked to many people on this broadcast about, uh, the 1969 white paper of assimilation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that that really woke the sleeping giant all across Canada. And then on top of that, in the Northwest Territories, same year, Gretchen announced the his white paper on Northern Development, which said in the Direct quote is, the vast untapped riches of the North will develop, be developed in the interests of all Canadians. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't a word or a whisper in there about the rights of Indigenous people. At that time, simply known as Natives or Indians and Eskimos and Métis, nothing was in there. And now the Northern organizations were very aggressive in getting together organizing and taking the stand. And every week for two years or more, there'd be another announcement from the federal government on an additional development project, on new contracts and seismic lines, and road to the Arctic Ocean, more oil companies. And it was absolutely no one's surprise that the proposal came then to build a $10 billion Mackenzie Valley pipeline and now the fat was really in the fire, and people were desperately concerned about their future and their communities and what was going to happen to the communities of a little place like Wrigley with a hundred people, and there's a five hundred or a thousand people in a construction camp three miles away. The community's going to be destroyed. Everybody yeah. would know that. And so the tension grew to the point where it was. You could taste the racial tension every day in in the town of Yellowknife and throughout the north. And the government recognized that it now needed a a referee. And it appointed Berger to do a commission of inquiry. And he was to make recommendations on the social, environmental, or economic impacts of the pipeline. He had no mandate to stop it and didn't try and stop it. But that inquiry changed absolutely everything. 
and we said at CBC and the the director of CBC at the time named Andrew Cowan that we needed to do broadcasts that was going to reflect the size of this project and we did a program every night on the inquiry in seven languages English and six indigenous language Dog Ribbon Chupayan Eastern and Western Inuktitut, Slavey, and Gutchen. Well, and we did them with four broadcasters. Yeah. So the, the friend that I mentioned, Joe Toby, mm-hmm. Joe did both the uh, Dog Rib and the Chipwayan, and Abel Pick did the both Inuk dialects yeah. every night, and Louis Blondin was the uh, Slavey reporter and a retired Anglican minister named Jim Edward Sittatinley was the Gwich'in broadcaster. And each night, everybody did their own show. Some nights, our programs could be quite similar, maybe about all the same issue. But another night, there could be seven different takes on the inquiry, depending on what the evidence yeah, was. Because yeah. one of them would concentrate if there was a crossing of the of a river in uh, the Slavey community or near the Great Bear Lake. Mm-hmm. Louis would focus on that. Yeah. Uh, if there was testimony about the whales, Abe would focus on that and similar. And and Joe may f- focus on the impacts on the work camp someplace else. So we could be quite different some nights. But the point is, when Berger took his inquiry, and he did, to every village along the route and to every village along the Arctic coast, people had a solid understanding of what the issues were, and they had it because of those four broadcasters. Right. And and I'll just say that they are without a question. They were, are, and remain without question. Probably the best broadcasters I'd ever worked with. Yeah. So what was the uh, result of the, the inquiry? Um... Well, the inquiry changed everything. Now, I said that he didn't have a mandate to stop the pipeline and he didn't try but I think Gordon he did the most remarkable thing imaginable with all of the tension that was there all of the bitterness he wrote a report and made recommendations that gave something to everybody mm-hmm. he said to the testimony from all the indigenous groups he said there should be no pipeline until the land claims are settled. That's what they asked for. And so he said there should be a 10-year moratorium on a pipeline through the Mackenzie Valley until the land claims are settled. Mm -hmm. After that, the country of the Delta is off the Mackenzie, it can stand a a gas pipeline if you build it properly with the environmental safeguards. Mm -hmm. Not going to destroy everything entirely, There'll be damage, but it's acceptable if it's done a certain way. But first, land claims. And then there was the stretch of the pipeline. One-third of the pipeline would have come from Alaska along the top of Yukon and Northwest Territories, Mackenzie Delta, into the Beaufort Sea area that would bring the Alaskan gas. And he said that area, because of the incredible number of caribou migrating herds because of all of the wildlife, all of the support, all, all of the dependence on the land by the communities, that area ought to be a national park. 
that all of the risks to the environment, all of the risks were in Canada, and all the benefits would be in the United States. Uh, and so that was a huge victory for the Indian Evaluate and a huge victory for the environmentalists. Mm -hmm. And then he said, if getting that Alaskan gas is immediate, need is immediate and in the national interest, a pipeline route along going south from Prudhoe Bay to Fairbanks following the Alaska oil pipeline, and then along parallel to the Alaska Highway, that route could be considered. And that was a victory that he gave to the oil companies if they had wanted to take it. Yeah. They didn't, but it was there for them. But everybody got their interests satisfied. And considering how divided people were at the beginning, yeah. uh, it was a remarkable recommendation. Yeah. And, and nobody could quarrel with it because everybody... Everybody got something, and everybody at the end respected the other yeah. person's point of view. That was the the big thing in the inquiry was, and Tom said this himself, and, and we noticed it, the North changed during that. Northern people, indigenous people, found their voice. Right. They gained confidence. There's a friend of mine, still a friend, he was our cameraman, named Patrick Scott, and... Patrick went on to do his PhD, and in part of his and and his PhD was was about this very issue on how people found their voice and their identity, re, re, the rebirth of the identity in the inquiry, and he proved it by saying, and I'll, I won't have the numbers right, but you'll get the idea, that in the first few months of the inquiry, the word Dene was only used a half dozen times over the first few months. And then in the next few months, the word Dene was heard several hundred times. And in the last few months of the inquiry, it had come all the way around so that the word Indians would only be heard, or natives or Indians would only be heard a half dozen times in a month. Yeah. So it was a complete re re reversal. Yeah. And people reclaimed their identity and their and their voice, and that was the that was I think the strong and the lasting yeah. piece, uh, and I believe it had an influence on everything that happened that, after that. When the inquiry started, the Northwest Territory Legislative Assembly still had appointed members. By the end, it didn't have appointed members. Everybody was elected, mm -hmm. and the majority were indigenous. Yeah. It was a huge change the politically. Government. The territorial yeah. government, yeah. huge change, yeah. in that short period of time. Yeah. Just in the just in that, um, the confidence I think that young leaders got, uh, George Erasmus and others, yeah. you know, from the inquiry. Stephen Cafui. Stephen, especially Stephen Cafui. Yeah. yeah. But people found their voice and their experience and their confidence. And, yeah. and there's just many, many, many. Uh, mm -hmm. And they carried that, Nellie Cornier and, yeah. and others, and they carried it with them to this day. Right. The Snow Goose Gallery, located at 83 Spark Street, has been specializing in the sale of First Nations and Inuit art since 1963. The Snow Goose Gallery is a family-owned business, and as owner Ian Wright will tell you, the store prides itself on purchasing directly from artists and on their knowledgeable representation of First Peoples' art from across Canada. 
Here you will find Cape Dorset prints, carved Inuit sculptures, First Nations wood and stone carvings, and more. The Snow Goose Gallery is located right in the heart of downtown at the Spark Street Mall in our nation's capital. It is a great place to shop for gifts made by Indigenous artists and to consider when designing your home or office space. For more information on their collection, store hours, and contact information, please visit snowgoose.ca. You uh, you got a bit of a hot water back no then. No kidding. Uh, <laughs> I know what you're going to talk about. Go yeah, ahead. Yeah. You as a journalist uh, supposed to be unbiased in your reports and what you talk about about the issue of the day, which was the, you know the the inquiry, and, and uh, you got up at the advice of many people not to make a statement at the inquiry as a as a person other than a broadcaster. Uh, and against other people's advice, you went ahead and did it anyway. You almost got yourself fired. Almost, yeah. Want to talk a little bit about that? Oh, I can. I, you know, I went forty years and I never mentioned it. Really? Uh, but I put it in the book. I had to. I had to be truthful. Let me say first, I shouldn't have done it. I should have resigned first and then done it. But I was at the reporter's table in Norman Wells on a hot Saturday night in Norman Wells NWT in the middle of the inquiry. And we heard nothing but racist file all day long and all night the night before. And we were listening to about how no good the indigenous people were. And I'm looking at either side of me and here's my colleagues and friends Mm-hmm. Who were indigenous? Oh, yeah. yeah. Joe, Louie, Abe, every day, show up on time, work 12 hours every day, never complained, mm-hmm. never missed a shift, never missed a deadline. And and I'm thinking, and it was just wrong. Everything that was being said was wrong. And I, I got a temper. So I lost my cool. I dropped my pencil and went up and got asked to be sworn in, and <laughs> Bircher called a recess and tried to get his commission counsel to talk me out of it. And Ian Scott said, for Christ's sake, do you know what you're doing? And I thought I knew what I was doing. I said, I'm going to do it anyway. So we, I did. And I have the only regret I really have is that it wasn't a great speech. I wish it had been a great speech. But well, it was spontaneous. You know, we, we, it was spontaneous, and I was rambling and all of that. But I said what I wanted to say. I finally come out and said it. I think it, I think the majority who live in a country ought to count for something. And the majority of people here are Native people. And if they don't want the pipeline, then I don't want the pipeline. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it for the same reasons that they don't want it. Their land, their land, their communities. They're worried about their children. So, the message of what I had said to say was was quite short. I took too long to say it, but it was on the record, and the shit hit the fan. Period, no question. <laughs> and there were immediate demands, immediate demands, including from the head of the government, the federally appointed commissioner from all of the chambers of commerce and the associations of municipalities and mayors in the white majority towns that I be moved out of the Northwest Territories altogether right now, gone, mm-hmm. excommunicated. Uh, the CBC had difficulty with it. Why, did uh, they, why do you think they, they kept you on? Well, they, they kept me on because they didn't want to lose the, the, the momentum of the program 
And because maybe one honest guy, of the, of the last one that people would think about, they also, they did an investigation to see if my reporting was could be accused of being slanted, and nobody could really make that accusation. And then they spoke to the head of the lawyer for the 26 oil companies, Pierre Genet. And Mr. Genet, I, I didn't know this until maybe five or seven years later afterwards. He simply said that he had no trouble with my reporting. He said if Whit Fraser could be accused of anything, he could be accused of a bias the other way. Because sometimes in the hearings, and especially the community hearings, there will not be one positive word said about the proposal or the Canadian Arctic Gas and its proposal. And in every broadcast, Fraser takes the time to put our position in context. Right. You know, this is the company's position, squarely, and then carries the reaction. So he said, and besides, after all of that is done, Tom Berger isn't going to write his report based on Whit Fraser's reports. He's going to write his report based on the evidence. And and we have complete faith in the in the justice as well. Yeah. And so that was that was it. Eventually it it blew over, but yeah. it took a while and uh you know, I was told there was one town Fort Simpson the town council passed a resolution to said that I wasn't allowed in town to report on the Fort Simpson hearings. Yes, really? Well, I went anyway, of course, well, yeah. and did a report. Yeah. You know. What could they do? What could they do? Yeah. 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 Even um, I understand that uh, the municipalities went to, wrote a letter to the prime minister at the time. Well, they, that was the one. Yeah, that's that. That was the one. That's when I knew it was over, Gordon, because yeah. the. Uh, and I res- and I didn't engage in any of the debate. Other reporters want me to talk about it. I said my evidence is in the record. You can use it. I've said my piece. I put it on the record. There it is. I'm not backing away from what I said, but I it's done. That's yeah. it. And then the association, when the association of municipalities weren't, weren't able to convince the CBC to move me, they wrote a letter to the prime minister. Who was at the time? Trudeau. Pierre Elliott. Pierre Elliott. And in the newsroom, just uh, because we get all the news releases, and I was going through the daily news releases that came in, and it was about one or two paragraphs, notice from the Prime Minister. Were you nervous? No. And they, because it said the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister's office said, the Prime Minister has, uh, has received your complaint your concerns. He has uh, read your report. He has concluded that the CBC has dealt with the matter and it is a CBC internal matter and it is not something that the Prime Minister would be involved in. Right. And then I, I just wiped my forehead and said, it's all over because once you appeal to the Prime Minister, he doesn't listen to your appeal. There's nowhere else left to go. Right. Yeah. So you dodged a bullet there. <laughs> <laughs> Why was the uh, Berger inquiry important in affirming Indigenous rights? And did this commission have any bearing on Indigenous rights being enshrined in the Canadian Constitution? And the last part of the question, I think it did. But going back, uh, as I said earlier, 
It started out as an inquiry into the social, economic, environmental impacts of a steel pipe in the frozen ground. But after his testimony, after his hearings in all of the communities, and the, the extent that indigenous people in all those communities and the organizations put their case forward. This is the first time now the country's hearing about the desire for self-government. First time the country's hearing about communities and organizations that had lived in these lands since before any contact before, since anyone could remember. People that had been able to govern and look after themselves for thousands of years before anybody else set foot in the north or in Canada. All of that history was mostly for the first time being put on the record for the, for the rest of other, for other Canadians to hear. And there was a growing, growing level of support in southern Canada. Kakfui, Steve Kakfui and others, were going to the churches on Sunday mornings telling congregations called Project North. They were telling congregations in the south what this pipeline was going to mean for northern people. And they were saying, you know, if, if there's a sense of fairness in Canada, you have to look at the fairness of this. So there was a bigger groundswell start coming up support from the South uh, in support of Northern people. And the other one was that Northern people knew there would be no turning back. Once that construction started without land claims, without stated ownership, there'd be no turning back. They, they, and, they'd, and there was no formula for them to get any of the benefits. So it was kind of do or die, and they did, and they won, and they survived. And, you know. and the other side of that, uh, as I said, is that people were then ready next for the Constitution. And I covered the constitutional negotiations, and it was plain that it had turned. And, and people brought, if they brought nothing else to the Constitution, it was the confidence that they could state their case, and the country would listen. Yeah. So the, uh, the land claims were settled, at least in the West, and uh, the, the pipeline was built? No, the pipeline was never built, uh, and then it was never built. There was a time when... And when the communities themselves wanted a partnership with oil companies, but they couldn't get they couldn't get financing for guaranteed financing from the federal government, and then the other thing that happened is that at the beginning of the inquiry and through the seventies, everybody was told that North America had ten or twenty years of natural gas, and that was then we were going to be out of fuel, and by the time the inquiry was over, the story had changed, and we had. 10,000 years of natural gas supplies. So it never really added up as to, there was a, I, I think I'm safe in saying that someone created an artificial oil shortage crisis in order to justify those, those pipelines. And when it didn't work, they just abandoned the idea. So why, why was the pipeline not built? The reason the company said is that suddenly it became uneconomical. Too expensive. Too expensive. Too expensive to build and uh, and not enough demand for the expense that, the, that there were still ample supplies in Alberta 
in the United States, in Texas, and and God knows where all else. Right. You were a founding chairman of the Canadian Border Commission. Can you tell us, our audience, about this group and how Indigenous knowledge is recognized through their research and findings? Well, the commission, uh, I, I was asked to take on the... It was a whole new agency. It was about 1990, and uh, there had been a lot of tension in northern communities uh, with the scientific community. But people were doing a lot of research in the north, and nobody ever really knew exactly what they were doing. People weren't involved in it. Like uh, native people? Yeah, yeah, they weren't involved at all. Uh, but they had something to say. Mm-hmm. And so the federal government wanted a commission. We weren't a commission of inquiry like Berger. We were, you know, a commission to listen and to mediate, I think, was our was our biggest mm-hmm. contribution to uh, try and get people talking to one another, to recognize some of the challenges and make recommendations. And I was there for six years, and the commission went on another maybe six years after that and eventually evolved into an agency that's called today Polar Knowledge Canada. And the reason that they made me the chair, uh, to the surprise of many, including myself, (laughs) but the reason they made me the chair was that I had contacts in the North. I was a communicator. I could talk to the Northern leadership. Mm -hmm. I could talk to the members of our own board, uh, many of them who had done field research in the North. And I think we we played a large part in opening up the discussion and pointing out in various places the real value of indigenous knowledge and that much of it is science. Uh, and I always refer to a couple of examples from the experience with the pipeline inquiry, and I'll give you try and be brief but give you two of them. There was a long, long discussion about laying the pipe under the Mackenzie Valley shallow bay at the mouth of the Mackenzie River. The construction would have to take place in the summer and they'd need to lay 10 miles of pipe underwater. And the environmental question was how is that going to affect the uh, calving grounds of the beluga whales? And the Biologists kept saying to Berger, we've been doing research year over year over year, spending a million dollars a year. We we will find out when and where the whales are born. And my colleague beside me, Jim Edwards, said, well, geez, everybody knows the answer to that. And we had a map in front of us. He put a little notch on the map and said, usually right there, 2nd of July. So Berger called in a a regular coffee break. I knew the biologist quite well. His name was Rich Dick Webb, and we had gone fishing together. I said, Dick, talk to Jim. And I saw, I can still see the two heads together over the map, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, when the inquiry resumed, the marine biologist said, Mr. Berger, to the question, Mr. Sidichinley, from the CBC was good to help me over the coffee break. And he tells me the whales are born here, and he pointed it on the map, and usually on the 2nd of July. 
So he said, I can assure you that we will not do construction work in that area during that period, for weeks before and weeks after. And that was the only piece of scientific information that went into the record that nobody else challenged, that was accepted as science. And it was the traditional knowledge. And they simply didn't ask the first person they saw in a canoe for crying out loud, hey, you know about the whales? Right. We're yeah. looking for whales. Yeah. Are you knowing yeah. about them? Uh, another one, quickly, is mm-hmm. complicated, but I think I can simplify it. The proposal was to put a frozen, to freeze the gas inside the pipe to create permafrost and maintain the permafrost around the pipe so it wouldn't melt the permafrost. And they laid that out, and Abel Pick said to me, that's not going to work. Uh, the gas... The ground around the pipe won't freeze evenly. It'll freeze more on the bottom than at the sides. There'll be a big bulb at the bottom. And it'll push it out of the ground. And he took his microphone and he challenged the engineers and the scientists on it. He did his own program and I did mine and all of that. More than a year and a half went by of the inquiry and the gas company appeared before Berger one morning and said, Mr. Berger, we have to change the whole engineering design of the pipeline. The gas won't freeze evenly all the way around the pipe. There'll be this big ball at the bottom, and they'll push it, push it out of the ground. And I, I'm, I swear to God, I still got a bruise in my ribs from Abe's elbow when he said, See, I told you so. <laughs> you talking about Abe Oopik? That's a, the Abe Oopik. Yes, yes. Yes. Mr. Surname. That's Mr. Surname. Over uh, your years, 50 years of reporting various events in Canada... And you've seen and done so much. Do you think that Canada as a country is improving lives for indigenous people? Is there much hope for indigenous people of Canada to look forward to? Well, I have to believe there is, yes. And I and I know things are changing. I mean, I know it's slow. I know there's difficulties out there and there are new difficulties. I know the old difficulties with housing and social issues are still there, but they're not as severe as they were, but yeah. they're still there. But where the optimism is, in my mind, is that long before Mary's appointment, for many reasons, we would go to a lot of graduations at universities. And in every university, there's more and more young Indigenous people graduating. There's more getting through high school. Uh, Something you wouldn't have found in the 60s. We didn't see it before. 60s, 70s. You know, and, uh, and that's... That's where the optimism is, you know. Right. And I drive in different parts of the country, and you know I go, might go through a First Nations community anywhere from Nova Scotia to Alberta. Yeah. But the economy looks a lot better. The how, You know, the houses are better quality. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people are working harder. Uh, they're getting more, they're, they're taking, seizing the opportunities that are there and making opportunities so I think, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 the other one happens is too is what I see. It's an observation, no, no scientific proof, but where communities are now using their own land base. Lots of examples of that in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. of communities getting into the fisheries, yeah. uh, commercial fisheries. Communities in British Columbia want to be partners in those pipelines. Mm-hmm. Some of them. Yeah. 
So people are using more and more and more of their land base, and that's very that makes me optimistic. Yeah. So between the use of the land and the making the land economy, mm-hmm. keeping control of it, and measurable improvements in graduations, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm 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 much more optimistic. Ayaya songs are about our histories. Ayaya is an Inuit-owned firm that tells our stories in many languages across Canada. They are experts in publishing children's books, usually in syllabics, and they also do large multi-language projects like the reports of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls Commission. If you need help getting your stories into classrooms or homes, in Cree, Inuktitut, or other Indigenous languages, check them out at ayaya.ca. That's A-Y-A-Y-A dot C-A. The word reconciliation has been the buzzword recently in our country. What is your view on this, and what do you think we have to do to achieve reconciliation in Canada? If that is the appropriate word. Well, is it the appropriate word? It's the word that we, it's the word we have. Uh, there are other words that we can use. Friendship is a good word. Uh, I, I never reconciled with Joe or Jonah. <laughs> but I became friends with them, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the, and it's it's done a thousand different ways. I mean, yeah. here we are at Christmas time. You're looking for a Christmas present for somebody. Well, don't buy Wit's book. <laughs> buy Steve Cackfoy's book. Yeah. You know, uh, there are indigenous writers out there. Is right. what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Give them away for Christmas. But yeah. there's a thousand different ways to do. Yeah. You know, uh, in, 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 in towns or cities, there's an indigenous-run restaurant. Right. Go in and see what they've got, yeah. you know. Yeah. Talk to people. Yeah, I think that, by, like, uh, exactly what you're saying, um, non-indigenous people and indigenous people have to kind of come together and, you yeah. know, with some mutual respect, yeah. you know, yeah. and uh, yeah. learn to, you know, Coexist together. Yeah, yeah, you can be sitting aside, sitting beside a guy in an airport terminal, and he's got a moose-eyed beaded jacket on. So say, "Where are you from?" Yeah, that's yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah. And and things have started. What do yeah. you do? Right. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, yeah. tell me about that. Uh, we just is this. It can be as simple as talking to one another. Where uh, can our audience learn more about your work and what you've done and any upcoming books or projects in the works for you? Do you have a website or a way to people to Yeah, I have a, I have a website and there's another there's a, I, and and I've written a novel that I'm that I had a wonderful time writing and I'm I had more fun writing the novel uh, than the than the memoir because the memoir you need to keep the straight line and Stay, stay with the truth, yeah, you yeah. know. But with a novel, your imagination can go wherever you want it to go. Right. And I enjoyed that. And the story is, but in a sense, it's a reconciliation story too. Because the story is in the 1927, 1920s, what actually happened is the government sent Mounties north to the high Arctic islands and they became fum- human flagpoles and they staked Canada's sovereignty. Right. There was no crime because there was nobody living there. There was yeah. just Mounties on islands. And I've been to one of those posts several times uh, for various reasons. 
And I was at that post again in 2019 working with a tour company. What post is this? Dundas Harbor on oh, Devon Island. Right, that's up uh, the High Arctic. That's in the High Arctic. Yeah. And I'm looking at the old detachment that was there since 1924, almost 100 years. Yeah. And my imagining, and two Mounties died there in real life. Uh, historically, two Mounties perished there, both by gunshot wounds. And then 10 years later, an Inuit family lived there with the Hudson Bay Company and a child died. So there were three graves. I'm looking at the three graves and uh, a thousand images and stories of places that I'd been and people I'd encountered through my mind. And when I got back to the ship that evening, I had the outline for a book that's known called Cold Edge of Heaven. And and I bring into the book a relationship between one of the uh, the wives of one of the Inuit guides that with the license of fiction I was able to introduce into this what otherwise would have been a true story. And then the relationships develop and relationships clash and relationships dissolve and relationships reemerge again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a taste of what I believe life was like between the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many other things that uh, you've done in your life and uh, other uh, topics that we could sit here for another hour and talk about, you know. One of the things that, uh, you know, it's a big, such a big subject that I'd uh, rather not go into detail on it, and that's the relocation of the Inuit from Northern Quebec to the High Arctic, and, uh, and you've probably, you know, are quite aware of that, that story and, uh, and how those people were moving up there and mistreated and uh, not I so think, much mistreated, but, you know, like kind of the, 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 how yeah. they sent up the, the yeah. so unprepared, you know? So un I, I, I sat through the hearings that ultimately had, I think you were there too. Yeah. And I remember sitting through those hearings and, and uh, maybe I'll inspire myself to do something, but I don't think it's my story to tell. But all I could see was a movie, you know. There was the old lady, Minnie, and she testified yeah. about going up the gangway, and she slipped, and she dropped her stovepipes, oh. and the stovepipes sunk, and she was distraught. She'd lost her stovepipes, and I said, nobody said to her, lady, there's no wood. Right. There's no wood there. Yeah. You know, and that that image stuck with me and I hope that I hope that someday soon somebody will take that remarkable story. And and Larry Outlook has written a very good book about it. He's one of the one of the he was a young man in an exile, but Larry has written on it. Uh, John has uh, John Amagualik. Yeah, he's a big part of it. Was a was a huge part of that. And, Martha Flaherty. And Martha and and uh, so the people are there that still carry that story, and I hope they find other ways to tell it. But God, it would be a great movie. Are you listening, Zacharias Kunuk? Yeah. Well, actually, uh, there is a documentary. Yeah. Uh, the second one, uh, this one is done with more 
with better quality uh, filming. And it's going to be called, it is called Shadow of Nanook. Yeah. And uh, Martha was on it. I'll, I'll, I'll be in it too. And uh, as her spouse, you know, supporting character. And uh, it's coming out in 2024, next summer. Oh, we great. We finished it in September. We went up to the Antarctic. And the oh, great. The great. Yeah. And, uh, well, I want to see it as soon yeah, as it. Yeah. yeah. So but it's it. it's a hell of a story. Yeah, and, it is. And it's, it's another it's another dark part of the country's history but there's a there's the other side of the story uh not to justify what happened but people call themselves exiles but they're very much survivors and builders because and they contributed so much to life in nunavut today and and canada's for all the efforts that canada made on sovereignty the biggest sovereignty claim of the people themselves uh and uh, and John A. John Amagualik told me you may have heard this story before, but a long time ago John Amagualik told me when he told me his life story, somewhere along the line, he said that he made a commitment to himself that never again would Inuit be treated that way. Mm-hmm. And here's the remarkable thing: uh, this little boy, taken under those circumstances, had such family had to struggle so hard, wound up in Edmonton in the sanitarium, learned to speak English more, mm-hmm. uh, educated himself, had a gift for reading and learning and seized it. That little boy became the father of Nunavut. John Amagwali. John Amagwali. It's a remarkable story, yeah. beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of remarkable stories. Yeah. Uh, about the north and the Arctic and the people yeah. that live up there and been yeah. able to survive such uh, you know extreme extreme living conditions. Yeah. I've been talking to Whit Fraser from uh, Ottawa, and uh, Mr. Fraser is a former CBC reporter and uh, spent many years traveling in the Arctic and doing great reporting. And uh, I want to thank uh, you, Whit, for. Uh, for being here and doing this with us. I'm uh, glad I could come in, Gordon. Thank you for asking me, and yeah. I hope I hope I haven't made my last trip <laughs> up no, north. Of course not, no. <laughs> we'll ask you to come back one again. More, one more ice flow. Yeah, yeah well, you got, you're still working on another book, right? So, That's right, thank yeah. you. Okay, well, thank you very much. Yeah. Roots and Hoots is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. For episode show notes, please visit the podcast description and make sure to like, subscribe, and leave a review. For more information about the work we do, please visit legacyofhope.ca.